You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. We are doing a little bit different order of the gathering this afternoon. And we are going to prepare to take communion now. And the reason being is, if you remember last week, uh, Charlie led us through reading the story of the Last Supper, the First Communion, uh, with Jesus and his disciples. And we are moving on to the next chapter of the story of Mark with the crucifixion today. And the hope for this time as we prepare to take communion is that we would be entering the story as the disciples would have experienced it with the taste of the wine or juice and the bread fresh on their lips. Uh, Often, uh, actually every time we take communion, we take it with the posture of remembering Jesus and his sacrifice and also his resurrection. But the disciples, when they took it on this last supper night, they took it with fear, anticipation, anxiousness, not knowing what was coming. And so uh, we are going to take communion together here at this point in the gathering, and then we'll read scripture, uh, recognizing that we can take hold of Jesus and his atonement on the cross that we'll read about in a moment, but also enter into the story and feel maybe a little bit of what the disciples felt. So if you would stand with us, uh, we'll go through the line as usual, and then if you could just take the bread and the juice back to your seat. And uh, we will take them uh, together. I'll pray and then uh, we'll come to the table. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to be a family united in you, uh, in your sacrifice and in your resurrection. As we prepare to take uh, your communion, would you remind us of the deep love that you showed to us on the cross as we prepare to hear that story. As we look around to our brothers and sisters in this room who we are united in your grace Uh, Would we enjoy this communion together, uh, but also taste the great depth of love and sacrifice uh, that we remember with this? Jesus, we love you, we need you, and we pray that you would be with us as we take your communion. Come to the table. You can take a seat, kids. You can go on your way with the wonderful kids volunteers. Thank you, Adonijah. So we enter this story today as followers of Jesus, as the disciples may have entered this day, Good Friday, at dawn, wondering, waiting, anticipating, not knowing what might be coming. My goal today as we... uh, read the story of the crucifixion, a story that many of us are probably familiar with, is that we would read and listen and see it with fresh eyes, experiencing the story. Um, We've been journeying through Mark all year. This is actually our last Sunday in the book of Mark this year. And one thing we learned from the beginning was Mark is very selective in the way that he tells the story of Jesus. He doesn't waste a detail Every detail that he chooses has a purpose uh, in the story. And so what my hope for is this afternoon uh, is that we would listen for the way that Mark is telling the story, 
This will feel a little bit different than maybe a Good Friday sermon or an Easter sermon that you're used to uh, because uh, we're not opening up the whole of Scripture to read about the crucifixion. We're just opening up how Mark told the story. So there will be some things that you may think that we don't touch on, and that's okay. Uh, We're just looking for the details, the way that Mark has told it. So to open up, to start uh, this this teaching, I want to read the story from Mark 15. And um, I'd like to invite you to have prayerful ears and eyes for the details that Mark shares. Uh, We'll pause a couple of times uh, throughout the story, and I'll ask you to just shout out, what's a detail that caught your eye? Uh, And then we'll continue in the story. Sound good? Awesome. I love it. Let's read uh, from Mark chapter 15. We are going to start in verse 1. Very early in the morning... The chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd Uh, to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Let's pause here. What do you notice? What's a detail that caught your eye in this telling of the story? Marching forward in the story in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, 
Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he call, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. What do you notice in that part of the story? Maybe a repeated detail or something new. Yeah, absolutely. Now I see why Charlie does this because you guys just wrote my sermon for me. This is wonderful. Um, we're gonna spend some time, like I said, there's so much to unpack, unpack here. And each of those details you mentioned there's a plethora of biblical literature and commentary on what it means, why Mark includes those details. Uh, but there are three layers of this story that I noticed, and I want to unpack uh, in just a few minutes on what it, this means for universal history, what it means for us as a family of followers of Jesus, and what this means for you and I as individuals. Um, and so the basic idea that I want to get at that you may have noticed throughout this story is that Jesus is uh, declared as king, both mockingly but also in truth. He is declared as king in his suffering, and we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters of the king. So that's where we're headed today. Um, and I'm glad that, uh, that you all are along for the ride. So three pictures from this story. The first is the simple one, that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. It's repeated mockingly by the soldiers, uh, by even the high priests, uh, the, the members of the high council, um, and everyone along the story. But as Hamilton pointed out, the reality that Jesus is king isn't fully revealed and understood until Jesus is seen in suffering love. And his suffering is what reveals that he is truly who he says he is. We read in Ephesians a few weeks ago about this idea of suffering love and what it means that Jesus is uh, our suffering king. Um, now, one thing that I've, I also noticed throughout this, uh, this chapter is that the political language is all throughout. It's, it's sometimes hard to see it with our eyes because we're, we're familiar with this story, maybe. 
Uh, but to the readers that Mark was writing to, they would have heard all the layers of authority for uh, Pilate, for um, the high priests, for the members of the council. They would have heard those layers of authority and they would have seen Jesus in his suffering, in a way, submit to all of these earthly authorities. But in the end, ultimately, in his suffering and death, it became clear that he was king all along. But the question, like, as you're reading it, is what made the centurion realize that? Like, what, where's the cause and effect, the logic that leads him to realize that Jesus is the Son of God? And there's a lot to unpack here that we may not have time for. But one detail in here that I think points to it is the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom. Uh, and again, this is a pretty rich detail and image. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the curtain, I would encourage you to read up on it uh, because it's just powerful uh, what it means. But essentially, this curtain in the temple is uh, in part what divided uh, the temple into uh, different areas. And the, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple, was protected or, or guarded, in a sense, by this curtain. And that Holy of Holies is where God presided on earth. Some people have called it God's capital, God's embassy here on earth. His presence was in that room. And Jesus' death, this climactic moment in the story, causes this curtain to be torn in two from top to bottom. It rips apart the fabric of this huge, beautiful uh, piece of fabric and in many ways breaks down the dividing line between God and humanity. Uh, some have written that in this act, in this moment, uh, humans gained access to not only God's presence, but his atonement through the death of Christ. Others have said if you view the temple before the veil tore as God's capital, now God's capital is no longer in the temple, but among his people. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I think in that picture, we see uh, God asserting his kingdom through Jesus. Jesus uh, is king, and his kingdom is now among his people. Uh, there's this idea from this uh, um, story and from like wider uh, um, story-formed theology, if you've heard that term, just the basic idea that the Bible is one universal story from beginning to end and tells us where we are going and where we come from, and it's the true story of the whole world. Um, and there's this idea from that kind of way of reading Scripture that there's a sense of an overlap between the old and the new starting in Jesus, this big, grand overlap. If you've seen um, the... Uh, missional training center logo, uh, shout out to my school. Uh, there's a big like overlap uh, on the logo and um, I think we're gonna throw it on the screen. And here it is, this is the uh, illustration that the old age and the new age, they overlap in Jesus. And I think that becomes clear here at the point of the curtain tearing that the, um, the old and the new are overlapping in our current age. Uh, and that's a confusing theological idea, right? So I wanted to give you a better picture than just a Venn diagram. Uh, and so um, here's a picture that we took on my iPhone this year. This is in Tallinn, Estonia. And this is St. Olaf's Church. It's beautiful. 
It's at the center of Estonian culture, and uh, there's a Hanse- old, old world Hanseatic city uh, built on this hill, and at the bottom of the hill is a Circle K, and it doesn't make any sense. Gammy and I were there, and we walked up over this hill, and we're like, you could see the steeple coming up, and then you get to the top of the hill, and you look down, and there's a Circle K. Like, what the heck? It was so jarring, and our brains couldn't make sense of it, uh, but to understand it, we had to know the story of Talon and know where it's been and where it's going. Um, I'm not going to pretend like Circle K is the new creation, so don't worry. Uh, this next picture will be a better representation of it. So here is Talon in the middle of winter. It's beautiful. I want the snow, but I don't at the same time. Here is the old Hanseatic city with that same St. Olaf's church. But here is the modern city being built up out of the fog. Uh, And it's a new, uh, in a sense, a new uh, creation, a new chapter of their story. But they overlap, and it's so beautiful. You can see both the old and the new. And I think in that same way, in our story, in the true story of the whole world, um, we can see that the old is fulfilled and made more beautiful in Christ, and it opens the door for the new to come. So that's picture number one, that Jesus is king, and he has ushered in his kingdom in this great overlap. Uh, For picture number two, I want to take a a quick detour to the very end of this chapter, Um, and I'll read it here as we go. It's starting in Mark 15, 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning to the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that he, it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in, in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. So here's just a quick addendum to the story describing what the the followers of Jesus did in the immediate, immediate aftermath. This must have been just a couple of hours of time between when Jesus died and basically sunset leading into the Sabbath. And so this is their immediate response, and I think it demonstrates to us what it means uh, for us to be a family united in Christ. Where did I get that from? When I grew up, uh, when I was growing up, my wonderful mother, Dawn Marslander, she's the best, she's the goat. She's just amazing. She would use this phrase, uh, and she would, when, when teaching me the right thing to do, she would say, that's just what we do. That's just what we do. And as a young, curious boy who asked too many questions, I saw it as a cop-out, right? That's like saying, um, it's because I told you so, or you'll understand when you're older, right? But as I got older, I started to understand that there was rich meaning to this phrase, that's just what we do, coming from my mom, because what she was really saying is, you are my son, and because you are a part of this family, this is how we live. It's not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of morals or values. It's part of your identity. As my son, I want you to live in this way, and the same is true of us in Christ. We are all united in Christ as a family, and I think this addendum to the story is a beautiful picture of people living as a family for Christ united in him. Because most of the people in this story, 
don't have a blood relation to Jesus in terms of nuclear family, but they have followed him, they have believed in him, and they see it as their duty to care for his dead body, which is crazy. Like, consider Joseph. He uh, would have been, like it says, a member of the council. He would have been a respecter of the law and followed the Sabbath rituals and cleanliness and all of that. And he chose to put his status, his influence, his power on the line and ask for Jesus' body. And in taking Jesus' body would have made himself unclean and would have had to sit out the Sabbath uh, for that weekend, which was the end of the feast, end of the festival. I'm sure it was a poppin' Sabbath. And he would have sat out for the sake of Jesus and his family. And so I think it's a unique uh, picture of a family united in Christ. But then we get to what this story really means for you and for me. And we see that Jesus' suffering is not, it, it is for the sake of others. Jesus suffered for the sake of you, for me, uh, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family. And we see this in three, three stories in this, three little stories in this big story. First, think of Barabbas. Barabbas, early in the story, we see Jesus take the rightful punishment that Barabbas deserved upon himself. And so even before Jesus died on the cross, he is taking uh, the punishment of a criminal, a murderer, an insurrectionist, someone who would have deserved death both in the eyes of Rome and the Jewish leaders. Also think about Jesus being beaten by the soldiers and the abuse that he took. Um, N.T. Wright points out that it's likely that the soldiers who beat Jesus would have had pent-up anger and hatred towards uh, the nation of Israel in general. And they may have seen Jesus as a representation of that. I can take out my anger on this whole group of people by beating this one man who they call their king. And so Jesus, in that sense, would have been taken on to beating and abuse for the sake of the nation of Israel. Not just assault, but as we mentioned, humiliation um, and just unspeakable, unspeakable things. But then finally, the most important story of Jesus taking on uh, suffering for the sake of others is his death on the cross. And he took on the weight of separation from God um, as we see when he cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And as we prepare to, uh, to respond to these truths, these heavy, heavy truths, um, I want to read a quick uh, story from a wonderful man, uh, Makoto Fujimura. He's an author. It's a great book. This is uh, called Art and Faith. Uh, I know there's some book clubs going on in Missio, and I would say let's start a book club on this one because it's really, really good, especially if you're an artist, a musician, uh, or someone who's just interested in how our faith intertwines with our creativity. But he uses this image of kintsugi. Kintsugi is what this uh, style of art is called. And basically, in kintsugi, you take a valuable piece of pottery, maybe a bowl, or most commonly, it's going to be like a teacup. Uh, and you, uh, of course, if it's broken uh, and it's valuable, you want to make it uh, usable again. 
But in this art of kintsugi, what you do is you melt gold lacquer and you use it to bind it together into a new uh, vessel, a new creation uh, that is more valuable than it was even before it broke. So I want to read this. He just describes it so beautifully and weaves how what Jesus did on the cross reflects this art of kintsugi for us. He says this, the Japanese kin stands for gold and sugi means to reconnect. But sugi also has significantly connotations of connecting to the next generation. Kintsugi does not just fix or repair a broken vessel. Rather, the technique makes the broken pottery even more beautiful than the original. As the kintsugi master will take the broken work and create a restored piece that makes the broken parts even more visually sophisticated. So too, the biblical passages of restoration. Seeing the redemptive act of God, the ultimate act of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary through the lens of creation and the Holy Spirit's work awakens in us the potential of the new creation. The example of Kintsugi captures and enlarges this promise. The Christian gospel of the good news begins with the awareness of our brokenness. The fall created a schism between humanity and God caused by our desire to become like God's. Christ came not to fix us, not just to restore, but to make us a new creation. Christ's sacrifice at Calvary means he died to take our place in receiving the death we deserve. He took on the cross for our sake and became the sacrificial lamb for us. Christ's substitutional atonement, in quotes, will restore creation and us into the right order of God. And so in dying for us on the cross, in taking God's creation and using brokenness to renew us, Jesus restores us into a new creation more beautiful than the one before. He is restoring us as a new humanity into a beautiful, beautiful family and a beautiful city. And so th- these are three observations I made. Of course, there's so much more to unpack, but it's almost dinner time. And I hope that this uh, piques your curiosity to read the story of Jesus in a new way, uh, maybe to dig into things like kintsugi, Uh, or the story of the veil. Uh, But as we've said a couple of times, this is our last time reading Mark this year. And there's a whole new chapter after chapter 15 to read. Um, So Mark chapter 16 concludes with uh, just a beautiful, beautiful story. And we're going to read some of it in a moment as we prepare to respond in song uh, to what Christ has done for us. Um, shout out to Charlie because there's a wonderful sermon on Mark 16 uh, on the podcast if you're curious about it because it's what he actually taught on Easter. And so definitely check that out as well. But my hope is as we've sat in a sermon that's maybe hard, uh, that is maybe reminding us of our own brokenness, that we would see Christ renewing us as king and adopting us as his own as sons and daughters. So Adonijah, if you would come up and if, if y'all would stand with us, I want to read uh, this portion of Mark chapter 16 as we prepare to sing in response 
to what Christ has done, to who he is. And uh, we're also going to declare the mystery of our faith together as we do every week, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so we'll declare that after I read uh, this passage from Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said, looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So we know that Mark 16 is just as true and real as Mark 15. And we can live into the story that tells of the resurrected King who has adopted us into his family and has welcomed us as sons and daughters. So if you would, we're gonna put it up on the screen. Uh, We're gonna declare the mystery of our faith together. And then Adonijah will lead us in the song mighty cross. So would you declare this with me? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen, amen. Let's sing.